Welcome to Excavate, Uncovering Our Place in God's Story. I'm Heather Strongmore. And I'm Jamie Dawn. Today, we're beginning a discussion about wisdom literature in the Bible. We'll talk about this unique genre of books in the Bible. Proverbs specifically personifies wisdom as a woman and contrasts wisdom with Lady Folly. We'll discuss how these are portrayed and how the Proverbs discuss the roles of women in the home and the world. Let's dig in. So the wisdom books do include Job and Ecclesiastes as well, but today we are digging into Proverbs. Proverbs, as one of the wisdom books, is a genre that we don't really have many comparisons to in the West. And as a result, I kind of think we view the Proverbs almost like little fortune cookies Mm -hmm. and we distribute them when we need them, but we don't often sit with the book of Proverbs and look at what it's trying to say to us and how we can live into God's wisdom in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Right. Cause I think there are sort of pro- proverbial sayings that we'll have like in the U S specifically of like cleanliness is next to godliness, which is not from the Bible. FYI <laughs> people assume it is also the saying God helps those that help themselves. Not in the Bible. Just to be clear, if you're scouring Proverbs looking for it, it's not there. It's something someone else made up. Um, Yeah, so we kind of have like some just sayings, I think, that we sort of accept. And many cultures have versions of Proverbs that of just sort of wise observations or sayings. But I do think the Bible is unique in having godly, you know, uh, spirit-inspired proverbs that are speaking about the truth of the creation and the truth of who god is so good we'll notice that this as a text that's similar to other styles in the ancient near east um uses a literary device that often was kind of almost letting people know like this is going to be a wisdom text and that is that it uses a father's impartation of wisdom to a son And so that's kind of letting the audience know, like, this is about to be a wisdom text. Um, It's wisdom from one generation imparted to the next. And so as a result, the literary devices require that the like language that's used directly addresses men. And of course, we know that the people actually studying the scriptures and the texts um, and God's wisdom in general would have been young men. And so these would have been a part of Jewish life in general, but certainly it's mostly addressed to men because they are the ones who are doing the learning in that culture. So that's a piece of part of what we'll discuss later when we get to some of the passages that seem kind of almost strange about women, but it's in part um, because it's the literary device of the wisdom text is addressing men as a part of kind of indicating what kind of text it is. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's such an interesting and important point because frankly, there have been times and like still today where I feel a little bit angsty towards the book of Proverbs because there are all these warnings for men about seductive women and adulterous women and stuff like that. And I'm like, where's the warnings for women about 
bad guys. <laughs> um, you know, where's the like, my daughter, don't fall into the trap of the F boy. You know, like I want, I want that <laughs> warning in the scripture because they are out there. Um, but so it's okay, I think, for us to acknowledge, like, oh, I wish there were warnings for women about avoiding men who would be exploitative or abusive or whatever it might be. Uh, and th- yeah, it's okay to desire that. And perhaps there was a like verbal oral tradition in amongst women in ancient Israel that they would give each other those warnings and teachings and they just weren't captured in writing. Um, but so, yeah, I think it's important to note that it's not just that God doesn't care about women or something, but it is a literary framework rather than an intentional omission. Right. Another thing we'll notice about this is wisdom is personified, but wisdom, uh, when we talk about this, because wisdom is personified and almost has her own autonomy, it seems like, um, it can almost seem like wisdom is an outside force, almost as if it's a new age concept or even like a lower level God of the Trinity or something. And that's not at all what it is. Wisdom is an attribute of God. And later in the New Testament, we even get language around, it's a gift that God loves to give freely. Um, And so if it's an attribute of God, then ultimately God is having an aspect of God's self personified as a woman. So I think that's pretty significant. um, But I think it's important to also name that reality of this is an attribute of who God is not some kind of outside universal force uh, that's abstract and separate from the Lord. Right. Yeah. That's, I think, such an important distinction because, yeah, it would be sort of easy to almost worship Lady Wisdom in a sense. Um, And yeah, to see it as this autonomous being almost. And yeah, I don't, I'd have to think about this more, but what first came to mind was that when I think about wisdom, as an attribute of God, to me, it's, it's in many ways, similar to love as like love can only find its source in God and wherever love is present, wherever we are experiencing love in the world, it's be, it's flowing from God as the source. And I see wisdom being fairly similar to that, that it finds its source in God. And that like, where, like I said, other cultures have proverbs that can also be very true that may not be direct quotes from the Bible, but are drawing on biblical wisdom that would agree with wisdom that comes from God. And so wherever wisdom exists, God is the source. And other cultures and even other religions, because they're made in the image of God, can still access that aspect of God, even if it's not specifically from the Bible, it's still agreeing and finding its source from God. Yeah, that's so good. And I think Part of that is like that recognition of God's work in the world, that common grace experience of God's wisdom being a part of how God made humans. In fact, in the book of Job, um, another wisdom text, it talks about God's wisdom being a part of how God set up the earth. Uh, And so there's these creation texts within Job that are a significant part of what it looks like to understand God's wisdom is that God's wisdom is at work in the actual creation and in the way that God set up 
the earth to function. So when we look at the way that God's wisdom works in the world through other humans and cultures, that's a piece of that, that God's wisdom was set up from the beginning uh, to work within God's people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, One significant point of distinction is that wisdom is different than knowledge. So in the West, um, we often glorify our, this kind of abstract knowledge and um, the cultivation and getting more and more knowledge. Uh, and it may not even be, we might not even care really if you get to apply it. There are certain fields where I would say like that would not be true, but you can be a very bright person filled with a lot of knowledge and not be very wise. Um, and wisdom is very distinct from that. And as a result, there's a lot of word pictures and poetic language. And that's in part because they were designed to be really memorable and stick with the hearer. So one of the, um, one of the ones that always sticks out to me is that a, a fool returns to its folly, like a dog to its vomit. Well, that is very memorable. And anytime (laughs) you see that happening out in the world you're gonna be like that I do not want to be like that fool who does that um and so you think about if you're a young person learning the ways of wisdom and the ways of God and that's the kind of you know clear word picture that you're given that's the kind of thing that'll stick with you as you're walking as you're going throughout your day and so I think um that's an important note because we often as a result of our glorification of knowledge rather than wisdom, want the Proverbs to be something that they really aren't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would just continue with that distinction that especially in the West, we tend to prize logic over everything. It's like logic is the true form of de- the truest form of decision making. It's the truest form of intellect and like understanding. And I think it is really important that the scripture doesn't really talk about logic at all. Of course, it, it is it is created by God and it's given to humanity for as a tool for life. <laughs> um, but the Bible's not like, oh, yes, prize logic. My son, seek logic over all things. Um, it says wisdom. And I just think it's really interesting because logic has so often become, I think, a tool of the patriarchy to suppress and dismiss women. Um, and I, I bet a lot of women, if not all women have at some point been accused of you're being illogical, which is essentially like, now I don't have to listen to you at all. Nothing you're saying is meaningful. You're being illogical. I'm able to dismiss you completely. And of course, first of all, men are fully capable of being illogical as well. (laughs) So that's, um, an equal opportunity experience. Um, But I just think that's such a a weapon. It's been weaponized, I think, to suppress women. And I think it also has been an instrument of white supremacy to also suppress cultural expressions that might be more um, emotional or intuitive as well. And so it's also kind of a a European white supremacist um, value as well. And so I just think it's so valuable and I think caring from the Lord that the Lord is talking about wisdom not just logic or knowledge that could be logic or knowledge could be gender or cultural specific 
and wisdom is universal and wisdom involves emotional and intuition and like a, a, like all sensory understanding it's not only the head it is i think a combination of the head and the heart and is um includes observation includes empathy and includes just being sensitive and caring to the world around you and i think that's lovely and i do therefore again appreciate that wisdom is personified in a female form because i think women do often embody that well and so i think this is such a helpful counterbalance to i think systems of oppression that have been used to dismiss women and to treat women as foolish and illogical and unreliable and i think this is painting a very different picture of what who has what to offer and what is valuable in god's kingdom so good and i think it for me this is why sometimes i as much as it may not be universal across um different sectors of like society i think it's important if you are talking to other people who understand scripture about like a biblical concept, I really try to stick with language that's in scripture because I think we we don't often describe a decision that someone makes as foolish in our culture. Like that is not often language that we would use, but it's actually very clear. And so instead of saying someone's being illogical, if you actually mean they're being foolish, like you could say that's a foolish decision because that's, a biblical concept rather than a personal judgment. And so I just often think about how if we we try to add things to scripture that are just unnecessary when scripture has given us the language that's actually quite helpful. And so um, we kind of join in that partnership with the white supremacist language in some ways when we are trying to modernize language that actually scripture has given us what we need. And so we can describe things as that's a really foolish decision or that's not wise. Um, and so when I think about even what it is to be formed by the ways of wisdom and the ways of God, I think a piece of that, and actually Proverbs is very clear that our language is a huge part of what it is to live in wisdom. And so I really believe that part of what that looks like is for us to accept the language that scripture gives us and to use that as a frame of reference, uh, particularly with other people who have scripture as a huge part of their own frame of reference. Yeah, that's so good. I think that's such a good reminder and, and exhortation. So speaking of Proverbs, talking about our speech, um, one of the fun things about Proverbs is that it's one of those books where similar to why you and I love reading um, Deuteronomy and Leviticus around the law, um, Proverbs deals with our ordinary lives. It's a reminder that God actually cares about those really mundane things. God shows up in very powerful ways, some of which we've read about in these miraculous um, encounters that God's people have had with God. Um, but he also cares about the mundane of how you interact with your friends and how you steward your finances and what words come out of your mouth and how you steward your sexuality and sensuality, what your family life looks like. All of these are included in Proverbs. And I think that's such a powerful aspect of who God is, that God is not 
designated to one part of our lives, but that God wants to offer us wisdom in how we do every area of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, it just really is comprehensive. It does just span everything. And in some ways it can be, it's a different experience to read the Proverbs because there's a few chapters in Proverbs that are cohesive. And we're actually going to read one of them that is like, here's an elaborate extended thought about one topic. But a lot of them are a little bit scattered and that's kind of okay. I think that's an interesting form of writing because it, it that's life. I mean, our lives are a little bit all over the place. We're dealing with a bunch of different things all at once. And so that's also a little bit the format of Proverbs. I think it reflects the reality of human life that we're all dealing with all kinds of things at the same time. And so the Proverbs aren't compartmentalized. They're very mixed up in a good way, in a like, in a more human, realistic way. That's so true. That's really good. And kind of as going along with that, um, the Proverbs are not formulas. And I think oftentimes we try to simplify them as kind of if then statements. Um, If you do this, then this will happen. They're much more observations. Occasionally you'll find a proverb that is about what God will do. Um, If you are acting in this particular way of wisdom um, and that is a little bit different, um, but for the most part, they're really observations. For the example I used about a fool returning to its folly. It's not really like, it's not a promise. It's not a formula. It's just an observation of like, oftentimes fools keep doing the same behaviors and it's not a good way to live. Um, And so I think one of the ways that we've seen Proverbs mishandled is in that way of seeing them as formulas or um, saying that this is even the way that things should be or will be. And I think that's really important as we get to some of the passages, particularly around women and wives and um, just that language of like, okay, this is an observation of what happens when you are walking in wisdom or walking in folly. And those are different than like, this is the way that God really desires that things would be. That's not necessarily what Proverbs is saying. Right. And I didn't understand that for quite a while. I think kind of as a younger person, you know, I was one, just more black and white because that's how everybody is when they're young. But I just kind of had the assumption of like, oh, it's in the Bible. This means it's like about what God wants for the world, which a lot of the Bible is. But we've talked about this in other places too, that plenty of the Bible is just a about human stories. It's about people doing stuff (laughs) and often making mistakes. Um, And yeah, that Proverbs is more observations about a broken world, not necessarily understand or descriptions of a restored world yet. And so I just think that is important to keep in mind because sometimes some of the Proverbs can be kind of jarring or feel harsh, both for sure about women and also some of the Proverbs about the poor and how the poor are impacted by different realities and how um, just injustice can can flourish. It can if you think that they're about oh this is what how God wants things to be that can feel very difficult and harsh. But yeah, I think it is important to realize 
these are observations of this is how things are. This is the ways that a fallen world has been impacted by the fall. And that understanding can give us wisdom for how to then navigate that and move towards health and justice. But it's more about this is where we're starting from. And then what are we going to do with that? Yeah, that's really good. And a part of that is really connected to just in general, as we're learning the ways of wisdom, so many of them are connected to prudence and modesty. So then when we see that about finances and not like being lavish with your finances, then we shouldn't be that surprised when we also see that around sexuality and sensuality. And so, or maybe a better way of saying that is like, it's very universal that the prudence and modesty of wisdom is applied to every area of life, including sexuality and sensuality. And so um, I think that's important because when we get to some of those passages around um, sensuality, it can seem really, like you said, harsh towards women or very stereotyping. Um, and, but to understand this is this a very similar way of talking about things in the same way of talking about like we should be not you know we should be modest with our finances um and so I think when we start to understand that that's kind of a characteristic of wisdom um it begins to make a little bit more sense in the particularities of the different facets of that Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's really good Right. Because part of what has been difficult for me about the Proverbs at different times is like, we've been saying a little bit that they can feel at times vilifying of women, um, or overly harsh towards women, especially about warning men about adulterous women, about sort of promiscuous women, seductresses, if you will. And it, has been used, I think, to paint women as vixens who will just lead you astray. And like, you have to, you got to watch out because women are just lurking around every corner trying to seduce you. (laughs) And first of all, that's preposterous. Um, But I think a few things that I've been trying to maybe reframe in my own mind, because I think that's just been more of a patriarchal reading of it, not inherently the intent of Proverbs um, is that I think, and we'll, we'll get to this as we keep going, that I think a lot of what Proverbs is communicating is that women have power and influence in the world and in the lives of men and in, in society. And the ways that women exert that power is going to have significant influence. And men can be thoughtful and discerning about the power that they allow into their lives. And the other thing, that's the the other side of that coin, is that as there are these warnings to men about not being caught in just sexual promiscuity, that it's also then placing responsibility and accountability on men. It's saying, you have autonomy, you're grown, you're a decision maker, here's something to watch out for, and you can say no, you can walk away from that, you can choose a better path. And so I think that's what we often ignore in Proverbs, and especially if we're kind of just feeling the shock of something that feels very negative towards women, 
is we're ignoring the other half of that coin, which is now men, you're being seen as holding responsibility and being called to exert self-control and self-discipline and wisdom and good decision-making. And so I think that's something that we need to emphasize equally that yes, women have power in the world. We can exert that in negative ways. And men are not powerless in response to sexual seduction. Men also still have power and responsibility to guard themselves, to make good decisions, to honor the Lord in their lifestyle as well. That's so important because honestly, it's just so different from the way we talk about it in the modern church. And so to actually be able to point to scripture and say, that's, that's really not how the Lord talks about this. Um, another thing that I think is important and maybe others wouldn't find this as comforting, but I think there's a lot of places that because of like pronouns, so we'll see like she is lurking. Um, we might not realize that's this personification of folly that's being referred to. Um, and I think that's important because that's throughout scripture that, uh, later in the new Testament, we hear that the enemy is lurking, prowling, um, wanting to devour. And so when that language is matched in Proverbs, it's actually a consistency of the ways of God rather than a statement about women. Um, and so I think it's important to just notice those times where that's about this personification of ways of foolishness rather than um actual like women in the world um and i think even that personification of folly as a woman because it's contrasting with um with wisdom the idea of these women as kind of these figures of like grandeur um is pretty significant in that culture i think the fact that there's this feminine aspect of wisdom is striking to me in a way that I think would have been very striking in the ancient Near East. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's such a good reminder. And I think really echoes the prophets and the way that the prophets use feminine language about Israel, that it's important to note where this is a metaphor and where it's not inherently about the nature of womankind <laughs> um, or the nature of women in general, that it is a metaphorical use to communicate and teach and get attention. And yeah, that like, it is really interesting and attention grabbing that the metaphor is feminine imagery. And so that's really like, you know, worth paying attention to. And again, also that we need to separate that from this is how all women are always. And this is a metaphor for the sake of teaching. Cause it's interesting. We wouldn't say like all women are always wise. Right. <laughs> like I think I, I know a lot of very wise with women. Um, and I still would not say every woman is so wise. And so at the same time, like we can't, we can't take those personifications, um, and apply them to women as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, we wanted to look at a passage that really gives this clear indication of the personification of wisdom and folly. So we're going to look at Proverbs 9, 
Um, and I'm going to skip in between um, and only read the parts where either wisdom or folly are um, are speaking. So you'll see that in the show notes. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. And then we pick up with Folly. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Really powerful, very striking language throughout this. Um, and I think there's something about this image that has always been so powerful for me. You and I have spent a lot of time, Heather, um, on college campuses. And at the beginning of the school year, I just always have this image of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly kind of calling out from like opposite sides of the campus. Um, and that language of like calling out in the streets and um, that Wisdom sends her, the young women out to to call out that there's a real effort made on behalf of Lady Wisdom to call out and have her ways known to people. And yet um, the seduction of Folly is, is very real and so there's something about the college campus for me that has always been this very visceral picture of this of like you can almost almost hear the voices of wisdom and folly when you're like um hearing their calling in different ways on campus mm -hmm. oh yeah that's so true that's such a good picture especially in the first week of school like there's <laughs> there's just there's opportunities on <laughs> across the spectrum uh and yeah it is it's a it's a little bit of a war it's a war for people's minds and hearts absolutely and yeah i i love the language about wisdom calling out from the highest rooftop um from the highest point of the city and i think that's so emblematic of god's desire for his people to have wisdom that god i think longs for us to ask for wisdom and that God longs to give it to us. And it is a gift from God. Like we said, it is, it's an expression of God's self, but it's not something that's like hidden or exclusive or like, this is, it's only for a few of the in crowd of like my favorites, everybody else mm -hmm. can just, they're, they're on their own. You know, I think it is just God's longing for flourishing for humanity. And there is such an urgency, I think, in these descriptions of wisdom calling out and trying to make it as available as possible and trying for as many people as possible to hear that invitation. It, it's very stirring for me of, I think God's longing to protect us. God's longing to lead us into health and, and wholeness and to defend us from, 
foolishness that brings destruction and brings pain and suffering and injustice. And I, yeah, I just think it's so powerful, this, this sense of urgency and longing that God is inviting us to wisdom, which is the path of life. Yeah, I think that's so true. I am so struck by the food language this time around, uh, probably in light of our episodes around food. And but I I do think that's such a universal picture of wanting someone to come into your home and eat and having a good meal prepared for them. And um, so I think that's such a beautiful picture of like who's there, that there's wise people around the table or people who are dead and on their way to death and destruction in the in the picture of folly the meal with lady folly um and i think there's something about that picture of that these different feasts that's so striking and and really relatable for people of coming from different areas of life mhm and I think it's so key that there's food in both scenarios, that it's not just like, oh, wisdom is about restraint and like restriction. Um, and you don't you only eat if you're in foolishness or in sin, essentially. I think it's so important that there is still an, an image of abundance related to wisdom. And but it's a, a an abundance that's in community that is with other people. And I think it's so interesting, the language in verse 17, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. That's the promise that folly is making. Um, And how much secrecy and isolation are, I think, such weapons of the enemy, first of all. But yeah, when we talked about our, our food episodes, that isolation and like hiding and secrecy can be such just harmful aspects of disordered eating and a disordered relationship with food. And that that's the invitation of folly and that folly and sin is trying to make it sound cool of like, Oh, it's hidden. It's secret. That's really fun and interesting. And it's actually, it's not, it, it actually is very harmful. And so I do think that's such a striking contrast as well, that wisdom still invites us into abundance and, and feasting and enjoyment. And it's in the open, it's in community. It's not something that feels shameful or hidden. That's so good. Yeah. Stolen water tastes sweet. And there's something about that. That is a reminder. And I think we actually do see this throughout Proverbs that foolish behavior actually does try to trick you into believing that it is wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's such a picture of that. Like, I'm going to tell you that stolen water tastes like something. And so part of wisdom and a continued theme throughout Proverbs is avoiding ways of deception. And I think there's something to that that's so true because foolish behavior really does try to have this deceptive seduction to it of fooling ourselves into believing that it's a way of wisdom and I think that's such an invitation for me to consider kind of counterfeit wisdom and what that looks like um that's actually deception Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely right and that is one of Satan's primary tactics is to twist the words of God to distort that which God has created and try to make it seem 
different or new or his own um and to just try to sell it to us to sell us to sell us these cheap counterfeits and that is i think such a an obvious form of foolishness is believing that it's the real thing i think we're going to get to the passages that actually are about female uh sensuality but this is I think there is something to consider about the fact that foolish behavior is written in such a seductive way, that there's something that feels very initially attractive um, and yet very unsatisfying um, about it. And so this is one of those passages where if you're quickly reading it or not paying attention too much, it sounds like a woman is trying to lure you into the house for um, a meal that actually will lead you into death. And so it's one of those places where it would be important to notice this is the personification of foolish behavior that is leading you into a, a meal that looks like one thing, but it's actually the way of destruction. And so I think as we get into those passages that actually are about um, sensuality, I think that's a huge piece of naming like this is not this is not that but we will get to uh those seductive passages. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, I'm just echoing what you've already said earlier in the episode, Jamie, but that the fact that wisdom is personified in female form, I think is really lovely. I think that is actually a real essentially like compliment and affirmation of women that if we're thinking about a force or just um, an expression of God that is marked by um, care, that is marked by protection, that's marked by understanding and encouragement and support and like thoughtfulness, <laughs> um, I think it's lovely that our most ready understanding of that is when we think about women, that women are are a close example of that. So yeah, as much as there is sort of a, at times a difficult or what feels like an insulting perhaps metaphor that's applied to women, I also think we need to understand the really beautiful metaphor that we get to partake in as well. Yeah, that's so good. So because this is written as a father to a son, again, out of a literary style, um, we get a lot of language about marriage um and that's kind of what to look for in a wife what not to look for in a wife um and so this was a very heteronormative culture so because it's written from a perspective of this literary feature of um talking to a son there's a lot that's about a wife both really positive about the influence of a wife and aspects of a wife that are really negative. Um, and so we want to look at some of those ways that Proverbs talks about uh, marriage and particularly wives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's one verse in particular. So Proverbs 12, four, that is a really good kind of general, I think, summary of the ways that Proverbs talks about wives. Um, so this verse says a wife of noble character is her husband's crown but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. So it's this image of two ways that it can go, essentially. Um, that either 
a wife can make your life a joy or she can make your life miserable. And this, again, I think is pointing to the power that women have in the world and in our relationships that he's kind of saying like, oh, you're who you have as a wife is going to make or break your lived experience. <laughs> I mean, that's really significant. Um, and there again, I think it's not that men don't also have major influence influence or that husbands don't have a major impact on wives for sure. But I do think there is a major sense where the kind of wife you have, the kind of woman that you would be married to is going to totally shape your life and your whole experience. And so I think that's actually a real validation of the power that women have in the world. And I do think for sure is a validation that whoever your partner is, and again, I think this is true for both genders. If you're called to be married, that person is going to be the most influential person in your life. And so that's just something to take very seriously. That's something to really weigh carefully. That's a decision to, that's, there's why in the marriage vows, they say this is um, an, a, an undertaking we enter soberly or something like that. There's the word of like, we do this soberly to think about getting married to someone to making that kind of commitment. Um, that it's, it's huge. And we shouldn't underestimate the impact that your partner will have uh, on your mind and on your heart, on your day to day, on your lifestyle, all of that is going to be shaped by the person you're with. Um, and for sure, women are going to have a huge uh, amount of power in their marriage relationships. Yeah, I think that's such a good point about the power of women. I also think there's so much about um, reminding the young man of the kind of the sanctity of marriage and what it is to value like being faithful in your marriage in a way that is very protective towards women we've talked so many times in this podcast about how women would not have been able to be the ones to ask for divorce or um the fact that any sort of vulnerability in their marriage was a particular vulnerability for women. And so I think there's something about this reminding the young man of how powerful a woman is in their marriage that's very beautiful. And it also is very protective of women that they would not be put in a vulnerable situation to have their marriage um, kind of the rug pulled out from under them. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Proverbs 5.18. That's one that I think is fairly common for us. Um, that's talking about kind of the blessings of marriage and family. He says, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's a specific, I think, nod to or reference to your first wife, like that you should always stay with her and and find joy in that marriage relationship. You don't get to get tired of her you don't get to trade her in for a newer model, as they say. Um, that I think that's actually a really beautiful and pretty stern exhortation to men of like, when you get married, when you're likely young, stay with that person and find joy in them and kind of see them rejoice in the wife of your youth. I think that's just really beautiful poetic language of rejoicing in that long-term relationship and seeing that as something that should be positive 
over a lifetime and almost like to still see that your that person your wife through those rose-colored glasses through that like youthful love as well um to just hold on to that and not grow weary and bored and just kind of reject her but actually stay committed to her and stay committed to having joy in your relationship yeah that's so true and proverbs is actually a place where we see particularly in proverbs 31 but um that we would see this reminder that beauty is fleeting and so i think paired with that to say like the wife of your youth is to say you know her beauty might look different right now um and also still rejoice in that um i think that's a really beautiful invitation to see people um in their beauty in every season mm-hmm. right absolutely and it talks about wives being a gift from god proverbs nineteen fourteen says houses and wealth are inherited from parents but a prudent wife is from the lord that finding a healthy marriage, finding a, a wife that is a good fit for you. That's a gift. That's not something to just assume. And it's also not a right. God, God, actually, the Bible doesn't promise all of us marriage. Um, it says it's a gift. And when it does happen, that's a blessing from God. It's not something that we just assume or sort of um, demand from God. It is a gift. And when God chooses to give it, it's, it's from him. That's so true. And I think, again, it's affirming the kind of intellect and maturity of the woman within that. And so it's not kind of glorifying this one aspect of a woman, but to say like a prudent wife is significant and to kind of celebrate all these different aspects of the woman as they are talking about what it looks like to celebrate uh marriage and one's partner Mm -hmm. and you know what's not in the book of proverbs is happy wife happy life which (laughs) is a saying that i absolutely despise and people use it all the time i still hear it regularly from people that are even somewhat young like it's not Mm -hmm. just like older folks it's not just a generational thing i still hear this frequently And I think it's, first of all, so condescending because it's essentially used to like men say it, um, but women sometimes say it too, of like, give me my way, happy wife, happy life, or else I'll make you miserable, essentially. Um, And so women may say it as essentially kind of a tool of manipulation, or men will say it to each other in a condescending way of like, oh, give her what she wants, keep her happy so that she doesn't get on your nerves or something like that. And it's not at all really about mutual respect or partnership. It's kind of about either like childish indulgence or manipulation. And so I just think that's so unhealthy. And that's not at all the picture that I think Proverbs is intending to show us. It is talking about the wife that you choose being super important, but it's not talking about, oh, just pacify her, keep her like let her go shopping, (laughs) give her the spending money that she wants, and then you'll have a good life. It's actually just more about, hey, choose a partner that is a good fit for you, who is your equal, who is a woman who honors the Lord and is someone who honors you. And that that is what actually leads to a thriving, vibrant life together. It's not just about choosing an indulgent lifestyle to keep each other happy. 
Amen. <laughs> I always, to be honest, I kind of feel like often when women use that, it's kind of like a fake it till you make it kind of a thing. And maybe that's harsh judgment, but it feels like a, like, I'm, I'm going to be happy because I have things around me um, rather than mm-hmm. maybe saying like, actually life is kind of hard right now. And like, we've got some rubs in our relationship that aren't awesome. Um, and these, as it turns out, these things are not actually pacifying me. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so going off of that with sort of the opposite picture of a, I think, healthy, um, mature wife, Proverbs does talk quite a bit about a quarrelsome or nagging wife. Um, And again, these can be verses that feel a little bit insulting on the face of it, but we want to dig into it and see what there is to uncover there. So there's actually, there's five separate verses that are all very similar about a nagging or quarrelsome wife. Um, So just a couple of examples Proverbs 21, nine, better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Um, almost the, an identical verse in Proverbs 25, better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Someone was struggling with a quarrelsome wife who was <laughs> writing this. Um, Proverbs 27, 15, a quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Um, that's difficult or that's very expressive language for sure. And um, yeah, there's just like several verses about a quarrelsome or nagging wife who is like the constant dripping of a leaky roof, or it's better to live like to live on the corner of the top of your house than to live with a, a nagging wife in your house. Proverbs 21, 19, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Um, and so we want to dig into, okay, what does this have to offer to women? Cause we want to trust that scripture can give us thoughtful things and isn't just trying to be insulting and demeaning. Um, and part of why I think this might be hard on the surface is because there is such a trope, even just in sitcoms of nagging wives, nagging women and incompetent men, and they play it for laughs, but it's constantly it's always an unhealthy, weird dynamic. And even until pretty, like really pretty recent TV shows, like not just shows in the seventies and eighties or something, but even still a lot of modern TV shows play into this trope. So I think that's part of what we might be reacting to is our cultural depictions of nagging wives and incompetent men, neither of which are actually healthy or biblical, but we do want to be honest and say this can be a real temptation in marriage relationships for sure, even in dating relationships of women who will be nagging or um, contentious, you know, quarrelsome with with their male partners. And so what's going on there? What what might be uncovered there? So a few things for us to consider is I think it can often, when that is happening, when women are engaging in maybe nagging or fault-finding behavior, I think that can often, not always, but often reflect feelings of a lack of control or some kind of insecurity in the relationship. And that's a way that we're trying to find that control and power is by nagging, by kind of pointing things out, by reminding by constantly like expressing essentially like doubt 
in did you remember to do this don't forget to do that etc cetera, etc cetera. um and i even feel this in a very practical way when i'm riding in the car with my husband and he's driving because i'm a passenger i'm not in the power position i'm not in the driver's seat literally and figuratively and that can feel like a vulnerable experience and so it's very easy for me to be like oh don't forget to turn here um or like oh we should we should take this way to get there and some of that's okay you know like it's whatever but some of it is also kind of frustrating and it just expresses um unintentional i think disrespect in terms of like a lack of faith or a lack of confidence in my husband's ability to just drive a car and get us somewhere <laughs> um and it's more an expression in my mind i don't think of it as oh you're an incompetent doofus who can't get us there in my mind it's a little bit more of like i feel a lack of control because i'm a passenger and so this is a way that i'm actually making myself feel more comfortable and secure driving in a car um so that's just a small example but that can happen on way bigger levels in a marriage over time is that when you're feeling those maybe unequal power dynamics or just maybe wounds from your past around money or around any kind of um just shared power in a relationship that could be from observing your parents marriage or whatever it might be that can play out in your own life as well and so if you're catching yourself in those nagging behaviors or in a lot expressing a lot of like criticism or doubt i think it is an, an opportunity for self-reflection to see where might this be coming from where what am i experiencing what am i feeling in the relationship am i feeling out of control in some way am i feeling some form of insecurity or a lack of trust and how might that be manifesting itself in behaviors of of nagging or fault finding yeah i think that's really good one thing that is striking to me that Proverbs never says is anything about one's submissive wife. And so I think there's something to this that we have to be careful to not equate nagging with being assertive, uh, cause those are very different things. And so, um, I actually think nagging is almost like the easy way out rather than being assertive about something to say, mm. can we have a conversation about like, sometimes you drive kind of recklessly and it actually makes me feel unsafe or um, we need to have a real conversation here about the mental load that I have to carry of keeping track of things. Cause then it makes me feel like I need to nag you and ask you if you remembered to do something. Cause I'm the one carrying this load. Um, and so Proverbs is never saying women can't speak up in a marriage or um, anything like that. It's actually strikingly silent on that um and I think nagging so often occurs when we are too afraid um out of our own insecurities to have a larger maybe harder conversation and so it's almost the easy way out of having a really simple conversation of um that ends up sounding like a leaky faucet because it's just one drip at a time rather than a a hard conversation that may feel, you know, much larger. And I think that's the more important conversation that needs to happen. Um, and so anytime there's like a pattern of nagging, I think there's a good question to ask of 
where's the, what is the larger conversation that may need to occur here that's maybe causing me to, to do this? And maybe that's just a personal conversation about like, oh, I have real issues with a lack of control. Or maybe it's a conversation about who is carrying the mental load of um, needing to take care of certain aspects around the home or schedule or whatever that is. But, um, but I think it's important to name the what's not present in Proverbs as we are talking about this, what is present. Yeah, all of that is so good. Yeah, because what's super interesting about Proverbs is it, it does very much treat women as autonomous. Um, and and kind of uncontrollable by men, which I sort of appreciate, actually, <laughs> that it's a little bit more of like, choose wisely, because once you're in it, you're in it and you're not going to like subjugate her to your will. It's more about make a good decision on the front end, um, because once you're there, you're you're in it. I think that's fascinating. There's I think that's such a good point. First of all, that yeah, there's no guidance on like here's how to make your wife submissive or like, here's how to make sure you're the head of the house. It doesn't, it doesn't do any of that. Um, it's really treating women as like women are powerful. They're going to make their own decisions. They're going to do their thing. And so you have to be ready for that. And again, like it's more about choosing wisely who you have around you rather than changing someone or trying to control someone later. Um, and yeah, I think those are such good points about nagging can often be kind of a fear or passive aggressive response rather than having a more direct and maybe risky conversation, but one that could actually lead to long-term healthier dynamics. And I also do think it's important for us to be honest with ourselves that sometimes nagging happens because it's just not how we would do it. <laughs> that like our partners or husbands might be doing things in a way that's not how we would do it. And so we might react to that. And again, we might be sort of fault finding or asking passive aggressive questions of, Oh, did you do this? Did, why did you do it that way? Um, and I, I think it was important for me, especially kind of early in marriage for me to put myself in the, in his shoes and the other position and think, I would hate being micromanaged and constantly doubted and constantly questioned. And so I don't want to do that to him. If you put, if you switch it and put the shoe on the other foot, that's also really insulting and demeaning if a husband were to do that to a wife. And for some reason, I think because it's kind of culturally normative, we assume that wives are nagging and they're, you know, men make jokes about it and we just kind of let it be a thing, but I, it, it wouldn't be healthy for either party to do it. So then we probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> um, and I actually do think it relates a little bit to what Paul is trying to communicate in Ephesians five. And we have a whole episode about that, about biblical marriage. Um, but where he says at the end of the passage, wives respect your husbands. I think that's part of where refraining from nagging or fault finding is, is trying to communicate respect and support and trust because when we are constantly fault finding questioning all of those things it's just communicating doubt and it's communicating i don't trust you i don't think you're an adult <laughs> i don't trust you to make decisions for yourself um, i don't trust you to do things correctly and 
maybe it's just that he does things differently and it might be correct in a different way. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just different. And so I do think there is a healthy, um, just restraint and, and really dying to self living with other people, living in community and marriage involves at a certain point dying to self and being like, maybe that's not how I would do it, but I don't need to comment about it. I don't need to draw attention to this every time. As if it's not something that's actually detrimental or harmful in some way, I'm just going to let it go because it's not that deep and it's just making him feel bad about himself and communicating that I think he's a dummy. And that's just not good dynamics for anybody. Um, and I do think as well, especially historically where women have lacked power in society, that manipulation and nagging has been a way that we have exerted some form of power. And I think we can be gentle, you know, with ourselves and with our just women in history about that reality. And we also don't have to keep living into that. Um, those, those, in, those social inequalities aren't helpful to also just keep playing out in the home. And so I do think it's an invitation to have healthier power dynamics and have healthier self-expression in the home. Maybe especially if we're not able to exert that in society at times, that the home is a place where we can find a haven to be more healthy and communicative. That's so good. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because I think we, I think your words about, um, the focus being on the the man um, in this situation is so significant, but I do just want to read one of the passages about um, not being led to this seductive woman, um, just because I think it's important. There's multiple. Um, and so this is um, an invitation to the young person. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice and I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with a crafty intent. Um... And it goes on to kind of describe the scene of um, an adulterous, seductive woman um, with persuasive words. She led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And all at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. Um, so then it goes on to say, now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. This is wisdom talking. Do not let your heart turn to her and turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave. So not a great picture of a woman like wanting to seduce this woman, this man rather. Um, and at the same time, the it's about the simple mindedness really of the man who is led into that seductive way. Um, and how it really paints this picture of it's ridiculous to fall into her path. And so I think that's kind of important to name that reality of like this 
as much as the picture is painted very clearly of this woman really desiring to seduce the man, um, what's also very clear is that the man who says yes to that and walks into her home is saying yes to death, first of all, and second of all, it is a way of foolishness. And so I think that is a powerful statement of what is happening, that they're actually saying this is a foolish way of living and you do not want to walk in that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it also is as I'm just as the conversation is continuing and especially as I was thinking about nagging and, and power and how women exert power. I think the way that Proverbs is talking about women seducing men, I do think it that is primarily the way that women have exerted power throughout history because we usually don't have physical power to exert. We usually don't have social power to exert in the same way. And so usually historically, the one form of power that we did have was sexuality. Uh, and that that's a reality. And again, Proverbs is dealing with realities. And so I don't think we are to see it as, oh, all women are just seductresses lurking around every corner. I think it's an okay uh, just guidance for men of this is the way that women may try to exert power against you. And it's okay to be aware of that. And it's still up to you to choose a better path. In the timeless words of, of Taylor Swift, should have said no, should have gotten home, should have thought twice before you let it all go. <laughs> that ultimately a man can say no and go home um and so yeah i don't think it's just like painting all women in this way but i do think it's referring to a reality of this is how women have exerted power when we're often powerless and i think that's also then um a cautionary tale to women of we do have power even when we may feel like we don't have as much power in the world in society we have a ton of power uh, uh, through influence in our relationships and the way that we conduct ourselves is going to deeply impact the people around us. And that's something to really steward and take really seriously. And that we we also are autonomous and we can use that power for evil to um, manipulate and try to control men or other people. And we can really use that power for good. And I do think that is the heart of Proverbs and the way that it's talking about women is it's affirming power and it's a an invitation and I think a warning of the way we exert power is going to have big impact. So let's be really thoughtful about the ways that we engage with that. And it points so much to the patterns that we've developed in our lives. And so um, this, like, if you say to wisdom, you are my sister then you're developing the pattern of inviting wisdom into your life over and over again, that you are not someone who is walking in simple mindedness and futile thinking. And so I think um, to be a person of wisdom is to consistently walk in the ways of wisdom. And that helps us develop patterns that make it easier to uh, walk in the ways of wisdom. And so I think that's a huge piece of this, that the, the pattern, the reason that there's women who are identified as an adulterous woman is because that is a pattern of one's life. Um, and so 
I think it's pointing to the ways that patterns really make a difference in our lives and walking in the ways of wisdom are significant. And so that idea of like, um, a consistency is, I think a piece of that. And I think helps me feel less like Proverbs is like slut shaming women and more like, this is a pattern of behavior that this woman has chosen to open up her home when her husband leaves town rather than, um, a, you know, and a pattern of her life rather than a a single decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think that's a really good point. Before we close, I wanted to, um, just bring up, uh, one of the Proverbs around widows, because there's so much in Proverbs that does deal with, um, caring for the poor as much as it does also talk about, you know, kind of avoiding situations that would lead to, um, a spiral into poverty. Um, there's a clarity of giving to the poor. And often those are the ones that are linked to actual promises and God's response. So where other things would be an observation of using your money in frivolous ways leads to a spiral that's not helpful. Um, that's an observation. Um, I believe it's Proverbs nineteen seventeen talks about when you lend to the poor, you lend to the Lord and he will repay you. So that's a passage that's like, that's the Lord, not, not just an observation of the Lord you know, rewarding that, but also, um, something attached to it. And that's the case in this proverb about widows as well. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. And so in the same way that, um, it's so clear that God is caring for widows throughout scripture, that's a piece of this too. And so I think that's important because there's so much that's about, um, family life in this, that, the reality of God's care for the widows and women who may have found themselves in vulnerable situations are being cared for by the Lord. And so that's both, you know, an observation and there's a bit of promise attached to that. Of This is the way of God, that God cares for the widows, that her boundary stones are set in place by no one other than the Lord. Um, and, and there's this picture of like, they kind of can't be moved because of that. Um, and so I think that's uh, a really powerful statement in light, particularly of, of some hard passages, but to be able to say, God really does care for those who have found themselves in vulnerable and difficult places. And he, he makes that known pretty consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's so good. Yeah. Well, this is one of a couple more episodes that we are going to be doing after this. So you may have noticed we didn't get to Proverbs 31 yet, which is a huge passage. So we wanted to give that its whole episode. And we are going to be talking about the biblical figure of Jezebel, um, which has been, she's been a bit of a lightning rod for all kinds of different discussions and perceptions. Um, and we have a special guest coming in, Caitlin Shess, who's going to join us for that conversation about Jezebel and about power and political influence. So we are excited to keep digging into these themes of women in the wisdom literature and then Jezebel as really a, a real example of how that can play out in real time. 
So we hope that this has been thought provoking. We hope that you'll continue to spend time in Proverbs and have some more tools perhaps for thinking about the ways that women are present and portrayed in the book of Proverbs. And we do, again, we hope and believe that God loves uh, his daughters, that God loves women, that we get to be this personification of of wisdom, that we are associated with um, a major characteristic of God, that God chooses to be personified in a feminine form and feminine language. And so that is really a blessing and an encouragement. And like we said, women have power. Proverbs and and I think God has created us to have power in the world, to have real influence. And so this is an exhortation to be mindful and thoughtful of how are we stewarding the power that we've been given and how are we being a force for wisdom and flourishing in our relationships and in our society. So thank you so much for listening today. Please do subscribe to the show so that you're getting notifications when we have new episodes coming out. We would love to connect with you on social media. We have merchandise available. We also have a Patreon with different perks available through that. So all of that information is listed in the show notes. Please do keep listening, keep sharing the show with others who also need to uncover their place in God's story. Thanks for digging in with us today.